The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's Ben Luke here. As you know, the Art Newspaper Podcast is on a summer break, but rather than leave you with a gaping void, we thought we'd spend the next few weeks looking back over the couple of hundred interviews and discussions we've done over the last two years, and, for want of a better word, curate a weekly podcast from the archive. This week, it's all about Vincent van Gogh, and two discussions about recent books, both written by the Art Newspaper's London correspondent, Martin Bailey. This first conversation features me talking to Martin and another Martin, Martin Gayford, the critic and biographer of Freud, Hockney, Michelangelo and others. He also wrote a book about Van Gogh, 2007's The Yellow House, about the artist's turbulent few weeks in 1888 with Paul Gauguin in the French town of Arles. The two Martins and I met last September to talk about Martin Bailey's book, Starry Night, Van Gogh at the Asylum. I thought I might start the discussion with you, Martin Gayford, actually, because you wrote the book The Yellow House, which is actually about a, a, another seminal period in Van Gogh's life, the, the period in R with Gauguin. Can you just tell us a bit of the background which ultimately leads to uh, Van Gogh entering this asylum? Yes, well, yeah, Van Gogh arrived in Arles, uh uh, early in 1888, having spent two years in Paris, which actually is the period we know least about because he didn't write very many letters then. And then uh, he, he spent the rest of the year uh, until early autumn more rather isolated and working in a sort of crescendo of uh, creativity, uh, which he described as maintaining a high yellow note. So more more and more masterpieces pour out through the summer, uh, the sunflowers, the wheat fields and so forth. Uh, and he was getting into a more and more wobbly state, uh, one gathers from the, from the letters, and also uh, uh, waging this campaign to get Gauguin to join him um, Gauguin eventually arrives uh, towards the end of October. Then they have a very intense period of nine weeks uh, in which they're working side by side, cooperating, quarrelling, uh, learning from each other. That culminates uh, just before Christmas in the very celebrated uh, breakdown and uh, ear mutilation episode uh, Van Gogh cuts off we now know his entire ear one of them and uh, Gauguin just leaves uh, he, he's, he's walked out of the house before he comes back Van Gogh's covered in blood he he, he disappears he goes to Paris he never sees Vincent again Vincent uh, enters the hospital in, in Arles and he emerges early the next year Martin Bailey can you take up the story from there Yes, I mean, Van Gogh's physical wounds um, healed remarkably quickly in a sort of week or so, which is actually astonishing. But um, the underlying problems were still there and the mental difficulties which had emerged. So he was initially kept in hospital and um, he was allowed out during the day initially to go to the Yellow House and paint, but he came back to the hospital in the evening to sleep. Um, but he became in- increasingly aware that he would be unable to live independently. There were too many mental um, barriers in the way. And um, his doctors and his brother encouraged him to move to an asylum. Now, the two asylums they were initially looking at were those in Marseille and Aix-en-Provence, which were enormous public institutions, you know, with a thousand patients. And that would have been terrible for Vincent. Uh, fortunately, in the end, he went to a much smaller 
much, much smaller private asylum uh, just outside Saint-Rémy, which was 20 kilometres or so from Arles. And um, he went there at the beginning of May and he was to spend just over a year. It was one year and one week there. Is it fair to say that this smaller asylum was somewhat more enlightened than those grand institutions that you're talking about in Marseille and Ikes? There was plenty of room, there was plenty of space, and that was very important for Vincent because they allocated him two rooms, one um, for sleeping and one for a studio, and that was fantastic. Um, In fact, I found documents which I published in Starry Light showing that uh, there were only 18 male patients. So it was a very small number. So they got much more personal care. And there was a garden. And that garden, uh, this lovely walled garden, was absolutely essential for Van Gogh because um, it gave him an opportunity to paint outside. And if he'd ended up in one of the large public asylums, he never would have produced what he did over that year. Well, exactly. And they were in the middle of cities, weren't they? And what's crucial to this period is that, as as we see in the paintings, he's surrounded by extraordinary uh, countryside. Yes. I mean, Van Gogh really developed as a landscape artist when he was in Provence. And I mean, the country around the asylum is so beautiful. Um, Olive groves, um, tall cypresses and the hills of Les Alpes in the background. I mean, we, it's, it now is a major tourist attraction, that area, because it is so beautiful and unspoilt. And that landscape um, it, it gave Van Gogh a great encouragement um, to exercise himself as an artist. And if he hadn't been painting, I don't think he would have survived. It was his reason for living. It gave him a vocation, um, and it was so important to him. Uh, tell me a bit about the asylum then. Um, you visited it and you gained access to it in a way that the public could never gain access to it today. Yes, I mean, 30 years ago, when I just began uh, being interested in Van Gogh, um, I was allowed inside the, um, it's now a mental hospital, um, and I was allowed inside and I took photographs uh, there with the um, director. Um, very soon afterwards, all visits from outsiders were banned, understandably. Um, So tourists now and visitors can visit uh, a small area, the church and the old cloisters, which are lovely and and very ancient. And there's a room which is um, presented as Van Gogh's room. It's not actually the room where he slept. Um, Well, that actually was one of many discoveries I made from reading your book that I, I, I visited it and 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 seen this uh, very convincing uh uh fake uh <laughs> room of angos uh and uh, and just accepted that that was where he he slept so um i, I imagine most people think that who they do it. yes yeah now in order to make this into a book you've actually gathered some new research can you tell us what that is Yes, I mean, so many people come to me and sort of say there isn't any more to discover about Van Gogh, but of course there is, there always is. And the most important bit of research I did was to find an unpublished register of admissions of the patients who'd come there. And this gave the names of the patients, and we now know um, almost all of the 18 patients who were there. And I was able to correlate um, the admission register uh, with a book and article by the asylum director uh, in the 1920s who talked about the medical problems of the patients when Van Gogh was there. And the bottom line is we now have a much better understanding 
of the environment in which uh, Van Gogh was. I mean, so far, um, art historians have relied very, very heavily on Van Gogh's letters, understandably, because they're so telling. But in the case of his period at the asylum, he writes very little about what everyday life is like. And I think it was partly because he didn't want uh, he wanted to escape from the asylum when he was writing. He didn't want to dwell on it. And he also wanted to spare his brother Theo uh, some of the uh, unpleasant details. So with this new information, we're able to understand much better what this situation was and how it was for him. So have you uh, followed up letters from other people that were in the asylum and that sort of thing what sort of materials have you gained um well looking mostly you know uh, at uh, birth and death records uh, uh, to see what profession the other patients were for example there was an elderly priest he probably had dementia he was sent there uh, um, and um, uh, in some cases people were mentioned in newspaper reports so it's a matter of um, of putting the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together, but that's the nature of research. And so, some of the patients uh, were very severely disturbed, which Vincent sort of touches on in his letters. But uh, you, you've managed to fill out fill out that information. Yes, Obviously it would have been quite. I mean, there were people who were shouting and screaming all the time. Yes, and I mean, violent, I was, and it's, yeah. it must have been quite a testing environment in order to, in which to produce landscapes and. Exactly, yes. I mean, I was actually shocked by how severely um, affected some of the other patients were, Um, the reports of them breaking furniture. There was one young man uh, um, who was described as violent, uh, but he couldn't speak. And if you can't speak, it's not surprising that you turn to violence to express yourself. Um, So it was actually quite moving. And uh, for most of the time, Van Gogh was... Uh, really among the sanest patients um, in the asylum. And it must have been very difficult for him being surrounded by these people. You know, every time he went to the, to the uh, refectory to have his breakfast, you know, there would be people throwing around food, shouting um, in the common room when they were keeping warm um, around the fire. Other people w- would be doing similar things. So it was a very, very trying environment. And so it's astonishing he produced this work. Although... Uh- it, it also, it, it strikes me, it was good for him. When he arrives in Paris in uh, in uh, May 1890, his new uh, uh, sister-in-law says, uh, remarks on how healthy he looks. He looks he looks rather sort of, he's sort of bronzed and fit-looking and uh, looks fitter than his brother Theo. Uh, so I would imagine that a regular life, regular meals, uh, probably... Uh, Little or no alcohol, which he was he was drinking heavily in in all times and before, uh, was probably physically was make, was making him more robust. Well, perhaps I can put you correct on ah. the alcohol, uh, because <laughs> in fact one of the um, conditions that his brother Theo imposed on the uh, asylum when he was admitted was that Vincent should be given a half liter of wine every day. That's quite a bit. It's quite a bit. One imagines he might have been uh, knocking back more than that. uh, Left his own own resources in half. Yes, I think your your basic point about the regular life and the sort of discipline and the regular meals is actually uh, quite important. And Vincent was not very good at organising his life. Um, He was very good at painting, but he wasn't really good at the everyday things of life and I think being in an institution although he hated 
the institutionalized life. I think you're quite right that it it, it probably made him healthier. And of course, there were doctors uh, keeping a little bit of, of an eye on him. Should we talk briefly about what condition we think Van Gogh had? Because I know that both of you obviously will have looked into this in your respective books. Martin, you, I think, give a very good case for... Uh, the pattern of a bipo- what we would now call a bipolar disorder existence in the sense that there were flurries of activity and there were points which where clearly he sunk into quite quite deep depression is 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 that what you would say he suffered from? Well, there have been literally hundreds of papers by medical specialists um, analysing what Van Gogh's problems were. His own doctors in his own time thought it was epilepsy. And uh, the most likely explanation is bipolar disorder, but it's by no means clear. And as a non-medical expert, I've always wondered whether he had two problems or even three problems, which makes it more difficult to diagnose. Uh, but what do you think, Mark? Well, I, well I, when I did my uh, uh, research, I put it to uh, the question to a consultant psychiatrist who uh, I happen to know and said, said if you had a patient uh, presenting with these symptoms, what, what would you think? And she said, well, I would certainly think in terms of bipolar. So I would, I, I, as uh, Martin Bailey said, I think that's probably the, the strongest uh, diagnosis. But it's quite possible that he had... Uh, I agree. Several things. I think it's pretty likely that he had syphilis, but he hadn't. It, it hadn't reached the uh, the, the tertiary f- uh, f- final stage yet. So that probably wasn't actually what was making him ill, but he, it was it was an underlying factor. And he, there may have been more going on as well. So let's let's talk about this extraordinary level of activity because these are very trying circumstances that he was working in, and yet one of the things that the book does really beautifully, I think, is show us page after page the masterpieces he was producing yes i mean he did some astonishing paintings and starry night of course gave the title um, and that's a painting that we all know so well and uh, he was only able to paint for sort of uh, three quarters of his time because the rest of the for a quarter of the time he was ill so when he was actually in reasonable health he was producing you know a painting uh, almost every day i mean that's an astonishing uh, achievement uh, he spent a, most of his waking hours painting. Uh, there wasn't really very much else uh, to do. But, I mean, it was one of the things that just is so amazing that he was able to produce these fabulous landscapes, you know, which are so optimistic, most of them, in the most trying of circumstances. Yes, and, and uh, as you uh, uh, underlined, there were, in, in the book, there actually there were more. There were perhaps another 20 or so which, uh, which were left in the asylum when he, when he went back to, to Paris, and most of which, or almost all of which, have disappeared. Uh, the, the, the productivity is quite astonishing. And uh, another point which rather intrigues me is what he chose to depict around uh, around the asylum i mean when one goes there well it's it's uh, well you can't help noticing that uh, some of the most spectacular roman remains in in southern france are just outside the gate uh, i mean i presume he could have uh, got that far to to, to, to to paint no no interest whatsoever in roman remains it's the same in Arles, the spectacular roman remains no interest at all. i think vincent didn't like the past and i even wonder if it he it 
he found it rather depressing or or or, or alarming. He's he didn't like Gothic architecture, and that doesn't he mentions in one of his letters that doesn't feature as much as it might, considering. Yes, I think I think he was almost rebelling against the fact that other artists were painting the Roman ruins because they were quite sellable. Um, so he actually wanted to do something different. So I think there was a sort of an element of rebellion in his decision to concentrate on the olive groves. Yes, or a corner of a field or a, or, or a tree. Or, yeah. It... One of the things that the, the, the book does really nicely is that you, so you see him sort of fanning out, as it were, and then coming back into the asylum. There were, for instance, the... Uh, paintings he makes in the garden and then you see the, the cypresses and you see sort of ravines but then also he made a series of remarkable self-portraits can you tell me a bit about the kinds of work he was producing uh, well it was it was mainly landscapes i mean he would have liked to have done more portraits um because the 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 only people he could uh, paint there were the staff and there weren't very many members or the other patients and although he did um paint two of the patients I presume that he needed permission from the director of the asylum and um, uh, the patients would not have been very pleased when they saw the result of the portraits that Van Gogh was producing because they were so unlike uh, portraits at the time Um, so because he couldn't do many portraits he therefore concentrated more on the the landscapes and um, there is an astonishing range and he did things in in series, in a way, not quite like Monet, who would sort of paint exactly the same scene under different lights, but he would paint wheat fields at different stages, slightly different views, different weathers. Uh, so he would investigate um, a theme. I'm not sure that he necessarily did it consciously, but he would he would you could see that he was selecting motifs that. Um, he particularly liked, and the wheat field, for example, was a view from his window, from his bedroom window, and the window um, had heavy metal bars over it. So he was actually looking through these metal bars at the landscape. Um, and again, when you realise how these paintings were created, um, it's such a wonderful achievement. It's uh, uh, an ironic sidelight, really, on uh, Van Gogh's. Uh, uh, Work is that he he remarks from time to time in the letters that what he really wants to do is portraits. So these landscapes and still lives and so forth that they're done uh, for, for for want of portrait sitters, uh, and uh, that was a problem he had vir- virtually everywhere in all. He couldn't. He had great difficulty in persuading people to to pose for him, and it and it if anything became even worse once he went into the asylum. Although I gather from your book several. Uh, uh, portraits he did do and gave to the sitters seemed to have disappeared because they were probably destroyed. Now this is an interesting point I mean I think he normally would give a copy of a paint of a portrait to the sitter as a way of saying thank you and very very few of them have survived so one must assume that uh, many other sitters were given the portraits of themselves and um, I think they probably disliked the portraits and at some point they were simply thrown away. But, of course, it's possible that um, in some attic somewhere in Provence, um, one or two of these portraits could survive. Well, there are uh, there is a possibility that quite a few uh, lost Van Goghs may turn out. Quite a few uh, went missing uh, during or after the Second World War, including one you reproduce in your Sunflowers book, I think it is, uh, uh, which was one of the... Uh, 
uh, pictures of uh, ivy growing on a tree, which uh, Van Gogh painted, which was obviously a painting he hugely admired, and it was last sighted uh, uh, being examined by Hermann Goering in Paris during the war, is that correct? That That's correct, and Goering almost certainly took it. There's a photograph of him with his thumb actually sort of feeling the impasta yeah, on the surface of the painting. The painter, yeah. <laughs> so we assume that he took this painting, which has now disappeared, um, but some things um, hopefully will still turn up. Martin Gaifer, can you talk about the sort of innovations that Van Gogh was making in, in terms of te- technically and in terms of space and his use of paint at the time? Well, uh, his his palette changes actually. The 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 uh, the Arles period uh, is characterised by this uh, high yellow tone, particularly during the the harvest period, the the summer, and it, it's uh, it's a little bit uh, uh, more restrained at Saint Remy. Uh, it's his. It's certainly a distinct, uh, although his his career is amazingly short. I mean, his mature uh, period is perhaps just about three years. But even so, there are distinct, when he moves, there are distinct changes. And he was moving, it seems to me, not I think abstract isn't exactly the word, but towards the end of his life, he was moving into a sort of freer idiom. Uh, and when he's painting for example, ivy and tree trunks. It's getting quite sort of free and wild sometimes. I mean, I agree that the the, the strong colours of the Isle period um, uh, are are muted when he's in the asylum, and that possibly may reflect his mood. But the other thing he does introduce or strengthen is the brushwork. And um, although he used strong impasto, thick paint when he was in Isle, the brushwork is sort of more dramatic um, when he's at the asylum in San Remy, and I particularly point uh, to Starry Night with this sort of uh, cloud-like form which sort of rushes across the canvas. So that's what he developed at the asylum. One of the things that strikes me when I'm looking at the paintings in the book, again, is uh, his amazing spatial innovation. There's a picture um, of pine trees in the garden of the asylum, and Martin, you describe how it's as if he's lying on the ground looking up to the tree canopy, but also it has this sort of almost aerial perspective of the figures, one of whom may in fact be Van Gogh, as you point out. That's another really striking innovation, isn't it? His his use of space and the way he characterises space. Yes, and you can imagine, uh, you know, that uh, on a hot uh, summer's day in Provence, you might actually be lying on the ground, um, sort of looking up at the sky and dreaming or thinking about the painting that you were going to do next. Um, but you're quite right. In this painting you describe, the, the buildings of the asylum look absolutely tiny. Um, it almost looks like a sort of doll's house and these huge great trees sort of going up into the sky and then the sky uh, changing its colour with different shades uh, of blue. Uh, um, so, you know, that shows what what was going on in his mind and the imagination that lies there. Yes, I, I thought an interesting point actually uh, came out of your observations uh, of Starry Night and your your investigation of exactly what the what, what the um, uh, conditions of the night sky were on whenever it was the uh, 15th of june uh, in in uh, uh, in southern france but your your final conclusion is actually he's not depict carefully depicting the uh, uh, the condition of the, the position of the stars and so forth so it's much more a sort of generalized memory image and uh, that's actually one of the um 
contrast in in Van Gogh's work, which uh, uh, it was a theme in his old period. He wanted Gauguin to help him paint more from imagination and memory, and he produces a few pictures at that stage of that kind, and actually a few more successful ones. It seems to me when he's in the asylum. Let's let's talk about this then, because I think this is a remarkable piece of research. Can you describe, Martin, your visit to the planetarium and how you got them to recreate the sky that Van Gogh might have seen on that? on that evening. I I was very curious to know whether Van Gogh was actually depicting something that he'd seen in the painting of Starry Night. So I went uh, to Greenwich, um, to the planetarium there, to ask whether they might be able to reconstruct what the sky would have been like on that night in the summer of um, 1889 um, in Provence. And um, I think because everyone's so intrigued by Van Gogh, they agreed to help. Um, so I went into the planetarium by myself in this large room and then they projected the night sky as it changed over that night. And one was able to see that Van Gogh had certainly not depicted stars uh, or the moon in the way in which they happened, but he'd taken various elements. So some elements could have been seen uh, the previous night, some the following morning. And he'd sort of, in his own mind, he'd brought together elements from the night sky to recreate this um, astonishing image. And it's quite easy to understand why he was interested in the sky. There wasn't very much to do in the evenings um, uh, at that time. Uh, There would have been virtually no artificial light, so you couldn't really have read. So you look out of the window at the sky, and um, he was therefore looking out of the barred windows um, probably every night, just sort of looking at them, at the stars. And the stars meant a great deal to him. He somehow sort of associated them with the idea of eternity. Um, so they actually had a, a sort of spiritual meaning for him as well. And then he sort of took these elements and created this really imaginative vision. Yes, it was a subject he'd been, he'd been toying with and attempting for some time, wasn't it, as you say? So yes, I mean, tell us about pe- the Arl painting that he yes, did. Well, he, yes, he did another one, which... Uh, Apparently, he he did do outside, uh, although that's the claim, which, uh, I mean, it would pose terrible or tremendous technical difficulties. <laughs> but, 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 but painting outdoors after dark, <laughs> enormously <laughs> challenging activity. Um, I suppose one of the, I was going to, uh, thinking about the Sarami uh, picture uh, you uh, one thing that struck me is you get very very little uh, 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 light pollution in 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 the provencal countryside in the late 19th century so you'd get a tr- tr- tremendously vivid uh, impression of of, uh, of a clear sky indeed i mean there was virtually no artificial light so it's difficult for for us who live in cities to imagine what the sky must have looked like sprinkled with all these stars everywhere but there's also this sort of intriguing possibility that he might have depicted the Milky Way. Uh, yes, I mean, the, 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 this curious sort of wave-like form that, that sort of rushes across uh, the painting, um, I think it could well be um, the idea of the Milky Way, which you really would have seen in those days, you know, as a sort of almost a white form. I mean, when we see it, uh, when we see it uh, with artificial light, we just see some of the stars, but, you know, you would have seen so many stars. So I think seeing the Milky Way must have inspired uh, the idea of this formation across the painting. But, of course, what Van Gogh has done is make it move and give make it lively. Now, 
let's talk about what happens after he leaves the asylum. First of all, why did he leave the asylum? And then what happens next? Because before too long, he dies. Yes, I mean, it's interesting. He left the asylum almost exactly a year after he arrived. He got increasingly frustrated um, with life there. He probably ought to have stayed because he had uh, probably four separate mental attacks. But he put very strong pressure on the asylum director and his brother uh, to leave. And they did agree that he could leave. Um, So he left in May 1890 and uh, he had a short visit to Paris uh, to see his brother um, and uh, his brother's new wife. And then he went to Auvergne-sur-Oise, which is um, a delightful village just north of Paris. And he was there for two months. He was very productive. Again, he painted a painting a day, plus drawings, and things seemed to be going relatively well. Um, And then suddenly um, tragedy struck. We don't know what happened, but um, he walked up to the wheat fields where he was painting regularly with a gun that he'd borrowed probably from the inn where he was staying. And he shot himself in the stomach. And he then managed to walk back to the inn and he climbed up the staircase to his room and uh, the innkeeper saw something was wrong and followed him up. And he was uh, very badly wounded and his brother came to sit by his bedside, and two days later, he was dead. Martin, did he produce much work after leaving the asylum? Well, yes. In fact, I was going to say to Martin Bailey that I I very much hope he's going to complete his trilogy and write write another book uh, about about the Auvergne period, because although it's only two months, it's it's another discreet period in Van Gogh's uh, work. And actually, you can see him moving in different directions. He changes, the the work changes again. He he goes for a horizontal format. Um, uh, I I think, uh, I mean, it's... uh, idle but uh, fascinating to speculate on what would have happened if he hadn't either committed suicide or committed this act of self-harm which which killed him off or whatever whatever happened if if uh, what van gogh would have done next is a, is a fascinating question well thank you both for talking so vividly about this amazing artist thank you thank you very much Now, ever prolific, Martin Bailey released a second Van Gogh book within a year, Living with Vincent Van Gogh, looking at his life through the places he lived and worked. This book too unveiled new details of Van Gogh's life, and particularly a love affair he had in The Hague, which ended in tragedy. I spoke to Martin Bailey in April this year about this and his work on Tate Britain's exhibition Van Gogh and Britain. Martin, one thing that comes through in the book is this idea that that van gogh very very rarely put down any kind of roots and and traveled almost throughout his entire adult life yes he was always on the move and as an adult and in fact he probably spent longer in london than he did um, anywhere else uh, in any other city later on i mean he moved around for all sorts of reasons uh, to begin with uh, he was looking for work um, he then became a Christian missionary and he failed at that. And he kept striving for something else and that would make him move on. He was very difficult to settle. And then once he became an artist, he kept thinking that if he moved to a different city or a different place, it would somehow transform his art and that he would be able to sell it. Um, of course, he never sold his art, um, but it was actually very productive 
in a sense, the fact that he kept moving when he was an artist because he had the stimulation. You know, he would be working in the village uh, where his parents lived, painting the peasants. And then, of course, he went to Paris, and that was exciting, and he met the Impressionists and discovered colour. And then he went to Provence, and uh, we are all enchanted by the landscape of Provence, and so was Vincent. So, he, yes, he was on the move. And the uh, the book is really a biography, Living with Vincent van Gogh. It's a biography, but a biography with an angle. It looks at the places where he lived, um, the cities and the villages, and the homes and the buildings that he lived in. So it's a biography which has got a sort of focus on it. There is a, 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 a nice section about his time in London. Of course, that chimes with an exhibition at Tate Britain at the moment, Van Gogh and Britain, which looks at that time and in, 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 as one aspect of the show. Can you tell us more about this? Because actually, at the start of his time in London, he's actually probably he's earning more than he would ever earn again for the rest of his life, isn't he? Indeed, and he was actually earning more than his father. Uh, he was aged 20, uh, which was a very impressionable age when he came to London. And it had an absolutely crucial influence on him. And I think one could go as far as saying that he, if he had never been an art dealer, which he was in London, he would never have become an artist. It would not have occurred to him. So when he was in London, he was working for a gallery in Covent Garden, a French-owned gallery. It sold a lot of high-class reproductions of paintings, photographs and um, engravings. Um, so he saw a huge number of images, and they also began to sell original paintings. So it exposed him uh, to art. And it was also very important in that he discovered English literature and the English illustrators. And those are aspects which are looked at at the exhibition at Tate Britain. Can you tell us more about his emotional life in London? Because I think, again, this is something that's really nice in the book. You, you, you deal with the details of place, you deal with his working life. But of course, you you begin to hint at some of the later troubles he would experience uh, in terms of his mental health. And, and some of that was emerging in London, wasn't it? Yes, I mean, I, th I think life is often difficult when you're 20. Um, he came here, you know, with very little experience of life. Uh, he'd been born in a little farming village in the Netherlands, and London was the largest city on earth. So everything was around him, uh, just near the gallery where he was working in Covent Garden, one minute's walk to the north was the vegetable market um, and next to it was the Royal Opera House that so was low life and high life and then in the Strand which was one minute away um, during the day there were bookshops um, uh, and uh, publishers there and then at night it was street walkers so he really discovered life in London and he also discovered it at the house where he lodged in Brixton because he fell in love and that happens at that age too and uh, there's been much debate as to whether he fell in love with his landlady or the daughter. Now, looking at all the evidence, I think it's more likely to have been the daughter. The problem was she became engaged to the previous lodger, um, so she rejected him. And in the end, Vincent was rejected in two senses when he was in England. He was rejected by the art dealer who sacked him in the end because he wasn't very good at dealing with customers. And um, the, the landlady's daughter rejected him because she fell in love with someone else. 
Now, he fell in love later when he was in The Hague. Can you tell us more about this story? Because it's it's a heartwarming story to a certain extent to begin with, but it ends in tragedy, doesn't it? Yes, it's a real, it is very, very sad. And um, I've got a lot of new information in the book about what happened and done a blog on it, which will be on the art newspaper site. Uh, basically, I've discovered what happened to Seen Hornick, who was the woman that Van Gogh fell in love with when he was in The Hague, and she moved into his apartment, and they lived together for just over a year. Now, Seen was a prostitute, or she was when Vincent met her, and indeed Vincent was looking for a model uh, to, for help his drawing exercises, and that's how they met. Um, and they then fell in love, and she moved into the apartment. Um, it, she had had a tragic life. Uh, she'd had four babies with different men, all of whom had abandoned her. Um, and anyway, they lived together for just over a year, but um, neither Seen nor Vincent were very easy characters, and they came from very different backgrounds. And in the end, they split up, and Vincent went off to paint in the north of the Netherlands. Now, very little has been known about what happened to Seen, but I tracked down her death certificate, which has not been published. And uh, she died um, in Rotterdam in 1904, and uh, it was death by drowning. And what is particularly horrific is that Vincent quotes her when they were together as saying uh, that she was a whore. She admitted that she was a whore and she said she would end up in the water. And that's exactly what happened. It's, it's, this is a really awful detail, isn't it? And, and, and another awful detail is that her body is discovered by a garbage collector in the canal, isn't it? Yes. I mean, uh, I discovered, first of all, the date of her death from the uh, Rotterdam archive records. And that recorded that she died in a canal in Rotterdam. Um, uh, I then, having got the date, uh, found newspaper reports um, about uh, the drowning of an unidentified woman, aged about 45, the report said, and this was front page news in the Rotterdam newspaper. Uh, the newspaper did not name her, but they gave her initials, which is obviously conclusive evidence that it is seen. And uh, it shows that, uh, that that's the way she ended her life. She actually got married um, just a, a few years before her death. And um, it's also tragic that um, her husband um, uh, lost her for a week, didn't know where she'd gone, went to the police. And then the police told her that um, it, it sounded as if it, his, it was his wife who had been found. And the body had actually been buried that morning. And the police insisted that the body, uh, the corpse, be um, uh, exhumed um, and identified properly. So it was a tragic story. I mean, uh, it's very difficult for us to imagine what life must have been like uh, during the 19th century uh, for women uh, in those difficult situations. And of course, they were known as fallen women. And of course, one of the sort of extra tragic elements of it is the sort of elements of happiness that actually come through in Van Gogh's works that actually depict uh, scene because there are these lovely tender drawings there were sort of more academic drawings where he's clearly studying the form of uh, a, fee a sitting woman for instance but actually there's a drawing of of her five-year-old daughter and and her, her baby as well as uh, as well as those sort of more uh, academic studies oh he was very he was obviously very emotionally involved with her and indeed she was the most important woman in Van Gogh's life 
uh, and the only one that she actually, that he actually lived with. Uh, and I think that comes through in the drawings and also the tragic story of her abandonment. And one of the drawings um, actually has a quotation at the bottom, which Vincent added about women being abandoned. Um, so he felt very strongly. And indeed, he actually wanted to marry Scene. And he said he wanted to marry Scene because if he didn't marry her, if he abandoned her like all the previous men, then something terrible would happen. And indeed it did. So tell us about the the period after this. Um, obviously, the sort of the, the the sort of established narrative we know about. But he didn't just immediately head to Paris. He didn't, and and then you know the then there's the Provence narrative. What happens after the Hague? Yes, well he uh, he escaped, if you want, from the relationship and went to the a remote area of the north of the Netherlands called Drenthe, and there he started um, to paint. Um, it was winter time and very difficult, so he then came back and lived with his parents in the village of Noonan, where they were living. And he painted the peasants there, and he painted peasant huts, and he painted weavers. Then he went briefly to Antwerp, where he thought he would do a, a course. Uh, um, but he was always a very bad student, and uh, he gave up the course very quickly and uh, moved to Paris, where his brother Theo was working, actually, for the same art dealer, the same gallery. And um, it was in Paris that his eyes were open to modern art, and um, the dark colours of his Dutch period give way to the really bright exuberant colours um, which we know of Van Gogh. He then headed south um, after two years in in Paris. Um, he said he sort of drank too much uh, when he was in Montmartre and life was sort of too stressful and he wanted a more peaceful life. And he also wanted to paint the landscape and uh, where better place could he have gone? So he first of all went to Arles and he was there for a year and a half and that was the time when he was living in the Yellow House and where Gauguin came and when the terrible incident of the ear occurred. And after that, the next stop was the asylum um, near Saint-Rémy-de-Provence, uh, where he stayed a year, uh, where he was looked after. But at that time, very little was known about mental health problems and even less how to cure them. Um, but he was remained there for a year. And then he, his last stop, on his long pilgrimage or journey, if you like, uh, was Auvergne-sur-Oise, which is a village north of Paris, uh, where he stayed 70 days and painted 70 paintings. And then the end came and suddenly he decided to end his life. He went to the wheat fields, shot himself and died two days later. One of the things in the book is that you've tried to find photographs of the places and also the rooms in which uh, Van Gogh spent his life. And that airless room with just a skylight uh, is tremendously evocative in his final uh, place, the room that he died in. in fact. Yes, I mean, it was a tiny room at the top of the inn. It was a very small inn. And it was the the garret room, and there was just a tiny skylight. It let in a little bit of light. There was no window to look out uh, 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 the, the houses opposite. And it's, it's, he couldn't really even paint in this room. The light must have been terrible. Uh, so I believe he painted downstairs. And it was in this very difficult situation uh, that he um, ended his life. I mean, his brother provided money, but Vincent was terrible at using money. He just spent it as soon as it arrived. So he always found daily life very challenging. In terms of the narratives of the book, you mentioned a kind of journey uh, that he takes. Um, do you get a sense of his life being one of 
um, progressive decline, or are there highs and lows in in along along this journey? Well, every time he made a journey to another place, uh, to another home, he always thought that that was going to be the answer to his problems. Um, he was always seeking, and it never worked out, um, and that's why he kept moving. Um, so uh, it, it is extraordinary the number of places that he, he lived in. I mean, he was in a, a dozen different places when he was, uh, an, over, at least over a dozen places when he was an adult. And remember, this was at a time when people didn't travel as much as they do now. Um, uh, so travel was a big thing. And it must have been quite disruptive for him. You know, he had to make new friends. He had to find out where to buy his canvas. Uh, um, he had different languages to use. And he was good at languages. I mean, in addition to his Dutch, um, he spoke English fluently, um, French even better. And he also spoke German. Um, Let's talk about the Tate Britain exhibition, because you're a co-curator of Van Gogh and Britain. Can you tell us something about your role in the show? Because it's it's a really intriguing show. It's a show, again, of multiple parts. Yes, I mean, essentially, the two elements to the exhibition. The first is about Van Gogh's period in England between 1873 and 1876, um, and what he did here, and what he read and everything, and the impact later on him of English art and English literature and English illustrations. And that's an area which I had quite a lot of um, that I'm a specialist on. And uh, I actually curated an exhibition at the Barbican many years ago on that subject. So that's the first half of the exhibition where I sort of contributed most, if you like. The second half of the exhibition is new and breaks new ground. And uh, I was less involved in that. But that's the influence of Van Gogh on later British artists. Um, I mean, the first post-Impressionist exhibition was held in London, and indeed uh, the term post-Impressionism was invented there. And there were British artists who uh, were very inspired by Van Gogh and also the other post-Impressionists. And the show ends with a bit of a bang on Bacon, uh, who did a series of paintings of Van Gogh, based on a Van Gogh self-portrait of him striding through the landscape. So I think it's a very interesting show in that it combines those those uh, two elements. Um, the main curator, the lead curator, was Carol Jacobi at the Tate, and I was really assisting on the Van Gogh research. One of the things I was struck by when I was walking through the show, and actually I find it a much more moving exhibition than some of the reviews suggested, actually, was that on the one hand, you had this struggling young man in, in England. And then there's this period where you see his art ripping through British art, almost like a comet, and creating enormous amount of influence, enormous response from British artists. And I found that really exciting, actually. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, during the Victorian period, uh, there was very little interest um, in um, continental art in Britain. Um, and then it, just around the time of the First World War, um, the British artists suddenly got inspired by Paris, um, by uh, the Impressionists and by the Post-Impressionists. Um, and they would often go there either to study uh, or to uh, work in the French landscape. Um, so it was a, a great influence. Um, I mean, one of the challenges for the exhibition is that it's often difficult to distinguish precisely what the influence of Van Gogh is rather than post-Impressionism in general, because Gauguin was also an important figure. But I think this aspect of, um, of the influence of um, the post-Impressionists on British art is something that has not really been appreciated, and the exhibition presents it nicely in a visual form so we can actually see the the links between the paintings. And I think 
it should be said that there are some absolutely stonking loans in the show, aren't there? There are Van Goghs that haven't been in this country for a very long time from overseas. The Sunflowers has travelled from the National Gallery to the Tate. It, it, I mean, there, are, there are a load of really great I mean, Van Tate, Goghs. Tate did fantastically in getting the loans and I know you have to fight for every single loan when it comes to Van Gogh. Um, I mean, it's wonderful the National Gallery lent the painting. It only moved down the road. Um, and incidentally, I could, should tell you, in 1947, when the Tate wanted to borrow a picture from the National Gallery, it was actually sent by taxi. Uh, <laughs> now, things are different now, um, and it was sent uh, in a very high-security vehicle, I can assure you. And so there's the sunflowers, but there are also some very important loans from far afield. From Sao Paulo in uh, Brazil, uh, there's a, a very important painting of an Alesian uh, woman. Um, there's this wonderful painting from Russia, of the uh, prisoners at Newgate, which is a lovely uh, link. Uh, One of my favourites is a privately owned picture of a tree, but it's very, very striking. And um, there's quite a lot of Japanese influence in in that picture. And that was one of the challenges of the exhibition because Vincent takes things like most artists do from different sources. So a picture may have a Japanese um, influence and also an English influence at the same time. Uh, yes, there are magnificent pictures. And finally, I should mention, of course, the starry night over the Rhone from Orsay. And last but not least, um, there are two self-portraits. And the most magnificent one is from the National Gallery of Art in Washington. Indeed. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Living with Vincent van Gogh is published by White Lion Publishing and is $30 in the US or £22 in the UK. White Lion also published Starry Night Van Gogh at the Asylum and that is $40 or £25. Van Gogh and Britain is at Tate Britain in London until the 11th of August. Martin Gayford's The Yellow House was published by Penguin Books and is still in print 12 years after it was first published. It costs $9.99 or $15.95. You can read around 30 blog entries on Van Gogh written by Martin Bailey on our website. Visit theartnewspaper.com and click on the Van Gogh blog link. You can also read the blog in our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions so that you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. Meanwhile, please subscribe to our free daily newsletter for all the latest news. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you normally listen to them and please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio. We're also on Instagram and Facebook, of course. The podcast is produced by Julia Mihauska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and it's edited by David. We'll be back with another From the Archive podcast next week. See you then. The Art Newspaper podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.